Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today you'll meet Tracy Edwards, who, when she was kicked out of high school at the age of 15, backpacked across Europe. A couple of years later, this dropout-turned-bartender was invited to be a sailboat crew member and found a home on the high seas. She learned the ropes and moved from cook and stewardess to fully-fledged sailor. After years of sailing, she was fed up with being underestimated as a sailor, so she partnered with the King of Jordan to assemble and lead an historic first all-female crew racing in the 1989-90 Whitbread Round the World Boat Race, a grueling nine-month competition. The sailing community warned her, it's impossible, you'll all die out there. Spoiler alert, they didn't. Now she's made a documentary with director Alex Holmes called Maiden, and they're here to talk about the incredible film that tells the story of her amazing 33,000-mile race and how she broke the gender barrier in world-distance sailing. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Tracy Edwards and Alex Holmes. I would like to start at the beginning. Where are you from? I'm from England. I was born not far from London, and um, but I grew up in Wales. In Wales? Yeah. Such I love England. I totally love it. I have a lot of British friends. I spend quite a bit of time going back and forth to London. My father lives on, um, Chel- what's the name of that long pier um, out in the financial district? No, I just forgot. Canary the Wharf. Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf. Thank Wharf, you. Yeah. I needed help. I couldn't remember the name <laughs> of it. My father lives out on Canary Wharf, so I go quite often and I visit it. So you started in, what was your young life like? Tell me. The, tell us from the beginning. What had an ideal um, idyllic, ideal childhood um, until my father died when I was 10. And uh, my mother unfortunately remarried and we then moved down to Wales. We sold our beautiful home in Berkshire, moved down to Wales also to, uh, well, it wasn't a beautiful home, but it was lots of land and ponies and sea and hills and I loved it. But my stepfather and I uh, were um, not compatible. and uh, <laughs> That was we... such a British way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> we did not get on well at all. And I became a very rebellious teenager and uh, a really horrible vile dreadful teenager actually and uh, eventually got expelled from school at the age of 15 and my mother very wisely when I decided I wanted to go backpacking at the age of 16 my mother very wisely decided to let me because it was the best thing that I could ever have done. Wow are you an only child? No I have a brother a younger brother. Uh, was he rebellious in... also? No, no, he was perfect. Um, <laughs> he probably would tell us that today, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was the intelligent. I was the beauty. He was the brains. Um, but no, he, he was um, always very well behaved. So your mother, man, your mother mothered you appropriately for who you were. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, she knew I was looking for something and I hadn't found it and I needed to be somewhere else, anywhere else except there, really. And, you know, it... it she just couldn't have done me a bigger favor by letting me go and find my way, which is what I needed to do. That's so interesting. I had the exact same thing happen to me. My father and I did not get along when I was young. And at 16 years old, he said, you do it my way or the highway. And I went, I said, I'll take the highway. Yeah. 
and that was the end of my formal education and you know and it was the right decision yeah know? absolutely you know some of us are just not supposed to be there yeah you know it's not meant for everyone not know? meant for everyone no. now, now let's talk about your early life and where you're from so coincidentally i also come from kind of right on the border with wales um i was uh, born in a small town uh, and grew up in the countryside, surrounded by fields and uh, uh, going on bike rides. Uh, you know, my, my greatest advantage was that there was no stimulus. Uh, you had to make your own entertainment. <laughs> Which you have done. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very happy childhood. Um, and then when I was a teenager, a bit of misfortune led to my good fortune. My, my grandfather died. And in his, as he had been unwell for a while, my parents had bought him what in those days was a very unusual thing, especially in rural Herefordshire, which was he actually had a portable television so he could watch television in bed. And when he died, nobody knew what to do with this television because in those days the television was something that sat in the corner of the room and everybody gathered mm -hmm. around to watch together. So I said, well, I'll have it. And so I managed to kind of snaffle this television to myself. I took it to my bedroom. And uh, while everybody else at my age was uh, reading their novels under the cover uh, by torchlight, I used to put the covers over the television and watch, uh, watch TV uh, late into the night. Wow. And in those days, uh, uh, you know, there were only three channels. And uh, one of them, in order to fill uh, their airtime, used to show lots of very obscure movies. And I just devoured these films. Uh, I couldn't get enough of them. And I had a whole teenage film school education watching these films on BBC Two. I mean, a lot of them were French. I was particularly fond of French films, mostly because there was the chance of seeing a nipple. Think, yeah. And that was <laughs> that pretty makes exciting. Like every red-blooded young sense. man. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, the watershed had no meaning to me. Uh, so I used to watch these films late into the night. Uh, and it was just fantastic, and I just absorbed it all. And I think that's where my love of filmmaking came from. Did that? Did that? You know, begin that? Uh, were you looking at how the frames were shot and uh, what the lighting and the things were like? Had you, was that uh, sort of the switch on that started that? Yeah, I, I, I loved the way they told stories. You know, it was about storytelling, and wow. it was about creating these characters and 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 creating characters who who con you connected with as a as a viewer or as an audience. Um, what what made you feel connected to their humanity? That's that's what fascinated me. And you know, I was very fortunate because the films that were hitting television, so the films I got to watch, were from a great era. You know, they were like like uh, the great uh, you know French New Wave films, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, Truffaut and mm -hmm. uh, Godard and people like that. But also the fantastic films of the 19, 1970s, American, uh, American nice. auteur yeah. films as well. You know, I mean, I, I remember the first time I watched Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. I, I could not believe that, that I lived in the same world as the, that this film existed <laughs> in. I just fell in love with it totally in every aspect of it. You know, what an incredible work of art. What a fabulous film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it just, you know, when, you, when you're uh, impressionable at that age and you're exposed to something as powerful and profound as that, you you can't help yourself. You just you just want to be drawn to that world. That's so interesting. So you had a lovely idyllic early life, and you decided to hit the road and go off. So what did you do? Um, I went You're back sixteen now, right? Sixteen. I know. I my mother was so brave, but um, I mean, I, I I think it was a safer world then. Mm -hmm. I certainly, yeah, you certainly I wouldn't have wouldn't your girls let go my sixteen year old daughter go backpacking 
anywhere. Um, <laughs> but um, so I went backpacking through Greece and I ended up a friend from Wales had a piano bar in Piraeus in, in, the, in the port. So I ended up working as a um, as a waitress, cocktail waitress um, behind the Cute as you are, 16 years old. And worked behind the bar and uh, in George's piano bar. And there, there was in Zia Marina, sort of just outside the, the bar, there was all these beautiful yachts. And I just, just look at these yachts and go, wow, I wonder who, wonder who lives on them. I wonder whose they are, you know, and, and not really thinking that people worked on them, um, which of course they do. Uh, so a guy came in one night. He'd been in a few times, a guy called Mike Corns, and he came in one night. He said, my stewardess has left me in the lurch. We've got a, we've got a charter coming up. Um, you know, do you want to leave the bar behind and come and steward us on the boat? So I kind of just remember being that, you know, sort of awkward 17 year old sort of, I don't know what to do in my life. So I went, yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, and off I went, packed my stuff, um, told Georgia was going and, uh, and, and, and off I went, got onto this. I mean, it was a powerboat. It wasn't a sailing yacht. It was a beautiful old powerboat. It was actually um, in a, in a, it was Edwardian. It was in one of the Agatha Christie films, actually. Oh, wow. Evil Under the Sun. And um, we went to Rhodes for four, took four days to get to Rhodes. And by the end of four days, I thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Wow. Probably not the stewardessing part because um, I did not enjoy that. Um, having your head stuck down the toilet while you're being seasick is not pleasant. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the being with people part for me. So the being on the ocean and being with a team of crazy misfits suited me really, really well. And I found my place in the world, basically. Were you also fascinated with the workings of how a boat moves through the air and the water? And was was that part of it for you? Or was it really just the society of crazy sailors? What was it? First of all, I, if I'd been on a boat or a tractor, it wouldn't have made a difference to me. It was the water that I loved and the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really get onto my first sailing boat until two years later. Okay. Um, and I learned to sail going from Sri Lanka to the Seychelles through the Indian Ocean. That <laughs> um, was a tough life. And uh, But again, you know, it, it was this being drawn to all these crazy people who... I mean, they. Just, I couldn't believe my luck. Can you imagine, you know, that I've fallen into this amazing world, all these crazy, wonderful people. I get paid to do this. And we're traveling around the world. I've got all my stuff I can unpack. You know, I've got my own bunk and everything. And, and you know, and, and every so often you'd anchor off a beach and you'd all swim ashore and you'd have a barbecue. And, I mean, considering what my life could have been and where it was heading if my mum hadn't, you know, sort of... Uh, you know allowed me to go off it was it was amazing and then when I started sailing then I thought yeah this is it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not going back to the most boats Mm -hmm. this is it Mm -hmm. I love this but you Mm -hmm. had no fear of what you were doing either you weren't in a position where you were nervous about the position that you were in where people behaved inappropriately or caused you to have any fear you seem you're glowing when you tell the story so I'm I'm assuming from that that you were having a wonderful time oh I fitted I fitted right in (laughs) and yet and yet there are people who go on boats who love it and who who crave it but there is a kind of determination to you as a, a, a sailor that came through eventually and, and uh, had you making history, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. But where's that from? Where I have that? absolutely not a clue. Really? I mean, seriously, not a clue. There wasn't a competitive bone in my body in school. I mean, you, you couldn't have... 
I hated sport. I mean, you know, teamwork for me was smoking behind the bike shed and the communication <laughs> system between telling the, the, the teacher was coming. That was teamwork. Um, but no, I, 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 didn't, I didn't get sport at all and I didn't get competing or any of that. So I have no idea where this comes from, except that it's part of this world that I love. And it seemed to be in the next step, the, the next extension of, you know, if you're sailing, then... I but because I get seasick, I think maybe I don't like going out for a day and coming back because that's just a day of puking up for me, which is not good. You have to equalize, so you yeah. like to go out for. So it for takes a long two time. or three days for me to stop puking. Um, so for me, discovering these long passages that was great. Do you know? Funnily enough, when I was started racing, uh, the first race I ever did was was the Swan Worlds in Sardinia, and I wasn't sick at all because I guess I was so involved with what I was doing. So that was a pleasant experience. And then getting onto my first Whitbread boat, for me, was just an extension of that, because it was, you know, 7,000 miles, five weeks to... Thank you very... Yep, I'll sign me up. Yep, mm -hmm. thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So I guess that leaving land and racing, having some purpose, just kind of all combined in a bit of a messy mix. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long did you do that? I guess for for about six years. It's not as long as I think it was. Before then, I got onto the onto the H five eighty six Whitbread Round the World race. It's amazing. It's like you're destined for this this activity that oh yeah then led to other sort of destinations and fates for you as an individual and and for a lot of different people. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like how what the sort of steps in the process were? I I fell. I fell across my path. I mean, I had no right whatsoever after what I put my mother through, what I put my teeth, oh, what I put everyone through. Oh, my goodness. When when my daughter was born, you know, when your child is born and you realise for the first time in your life that you, your child will never love you as much as you love your child. When I realised that, I just kept saying to my mum, oh, God, mum, I'm so sorry. Mum, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> mum, I'm so sorry. Thing. I did the same thing when I had my first son, not the son that you just met, but my first son, I called my father and I just apologized yeah. because I was like, I didn't understand. No, no. It's crazy, right? Not a how clue. How deeply that they love you incredible. and how you just don't understand. I know. And I, I pushed it to the oh. point of, mm. uh, so sailing for me was uh, just a really lucky, wow, my future career, I just fell across the path. But then everyone I know in sailing pretty much didn't go into sailing to become an ocean racer or you know that the olympics are a little bit different they start as dinghy sailors and they move up and they become olympic sailors round the world sailors get there by all sorts of different methods and we all sort of end up there but i, I really felt as if someone was saying this is your second chance take it mm -hmm. make the most of this because mm -hmm. you're not going to get any more mm -hmm. so i grabbed it with both hands yeah and at a very young age you had that deep sense that inner knowing um, what does it take to be a person who other people want to sail around the world with? What are the qualities? I think you have to be a – well, I love people. I'm a yeah. people person. I drive my daughter nuts because I will speak to pretty much anyone. Um, I, I know pretty much everyone, everyone in the shop along our street. I'll say hello, good morning, wave. <laughs> I talk to people in the garage when I'm being served. I talk to shop assistants. Mm -hmm. I talk to – and, and she's just like, why do, Mum, why do you do that? Why do you do that? <laughs> I just like talking to people. I like people. Mm -hmm. I think a love of people is what well, you have to have it. If, you're, yeah. if you sail around the world on your own, you don't have to 
you know, yeah, you, it's just yeah, you, it's just you. I don't really understand that at all. Um, but yeah, it's 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 enjoying being with people, which I've always have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's I've done some. I, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, scale when I was young, I sailed for years and years and years. But in the river, so these oh, yeah. were day trips. You yeah, know, these were not you know more than six hours. Yeah, but as uh, I, the longest trip I ever did was with six men down the Chesapeake Bay. Okay. And it was, I think, if I remember correctly, I think it was about four days, maybe five days. It was the most horrible experience for me because <laughs> I was on a boat with all these men and me, and they just assumed, which, by the way, you should never assume anything, that I would take care of those things, you know, take care of the bathroom and the sheets oh, and yeah. the cooking. I'm looking at them. What in the world would make you think that that's what I want to do? Because I did not, you know, come aboard so that I would be the chief cook and bottle washer. Um, so I didn't enjoy that experience of being on a boat with a bunch of men, but I loved the experience of sailing. I love boats. I love sailing. Uh, I've sailed through the Greek islands. I, uh. I love. I just love it. And I, I have a house on the water, and it's my favorite place to be. Yeah. So I can I can understand the addiction. Mm. But you have really. I mean, you've reached levels that I can't think of anybody that has accomplished what you've accomplished. So I, th- I look at you like Billie Jean King, but just on the water. Yeah, <laughs> that's, ex- yeah. that's really good. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it. Can you can you take us back to sort of the time leading up to 1989? Like, how did you get the King of Jordan involved, and and what was it that was as a woman, you know, getting the, the ultimate- King of Jordan involved? What was the ultimate sort of moment where you're like, this is, I've been under, underestimated too long. I've had it and I'm going to do this. What was the sort of thought process? Yeah, and how many years, while well, you answered that, how many years into your sailing experience were you when that happened? Um, not very far. But then, and this is the thing, you know, I wasn't a racing sailor, but I was a cruising sailor and I'd done hundreds of thousands of ocean miles more and actually some of the guys on the boat who just done around the cans racing. So it's all different types of experience all thrown into the pot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did the 85, 86 Whitbread because it just seemed like something that I should do uh, in my sort of journey through the sailing world. And the only way you, you could get on a boat at that time was as a cook, as a girl. So there were 23 boats, about 230 crew, and four of us were girls. Uh, and one of them dropped out after the first leg, so three of us ended up, um, you know, sort of completing the, the whole course. Um, I honestly don't know why I wanted to do the Whitbread. It was just something I felt compelled to, I don't know, put in my tick box, my list, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but once I'd done the first leg, you know, once you've done 7,000 miles over five weeks, there's no going back. It's an addiction. That's it. You're, you're stuffed. I loved it, but I... And I... I, I you know, the guys were friends, and although they treated me extremely badly, you know, I mean, they were just appalling. But I'm tough, and I put up with it, and I managed it, and I learned from them, and I, I absorbed. I was like a sponge, you know, absorb, absorbing experience, information. And then when we won the second leg coming into New Zealand, I went from being that pain in the neck, having a bloody woman on the boat, to oh, a bit of a lucky charm. And then I ended up with 17 older brothers, mm-hmm. which is a nightmare for getting a date, as you can imagine, <laughs> um, trying to date one of the guys on Simon Le Bon's boat. And, you know, I mean, and 17 guys going, well, you know, we haven't met him. We need to meet him. Oh, sh- <laughs> so <laughs> getting to Cramping the end your of, style. <laughs> oh, yeah, really go away. 
Um, at one point, I did wait for Drum to come in to meet him, and they all stood around me waiting at the same time. And it's like, oh, for goodness sake, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> Were you ever uncomfortable being on the boat with all no, those men? never. Not a single no. inappropriate moment? No, never. And that's something I find really interesting. I think some of the girlfriends of these guys were a little bit like, well, you know, the only, obviously the only reason you're going on the boat is to, you know, sort of screw our husbands. And I'm thinking, seven weeks, five weeks without washing, pizza bum, um, <laughs> smelly. pizza bum? Oh, what is pizza bum? Salt water. Stop, it's like, it's like nappy rash. Us. Nappy rash. Okay. So, yeah, we Monkey butt. Pizza butt. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so salt water, wet clothes, sitting on the deck, moving around. It, it's, it's not good for the complexion. <laughs> Um, so, you know, yeah, (laughs) I mean, you don't wash your clothes, you don't wash yourself, greasy hair, spotty skin, pizza bum. Yeah, that's a great way to get to sleep with your boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to flying around with you guys, going to the salons, getting in looking wonderful. You know, I mean, I used to get in looking like this. And they'd be all standing on the dock like this. Hi, darling. And I'm like, yeah, really. So anyway, after the first leg, they were fine. They realised that I was just there to race. Right. But the guys knew that as well. And I never... I never gave off the wrong vibes. And they never, ever, not once did I ever feel um, in any situation where I would be worried or... Yeah. And you were getting paid for this, right? Well, that might be an overestimation. We got some free T-shirts and some food and some pocket money. And this was in the days before we were professional mm-hmm. sport. So you, uh, this is a fantastic story. <laughs> I love this. I'm picturing you, to our listeners, She's you're so cute. You're so And you're tiny and you're she's adorable. She's a wee little and thing yeah. over here. She's a pixie-like Lady, and you look you look amazing. Yeah, you you're look, so robustly yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So oh there you God, are. Yeah. I can only imagine you <laughs> with dirty hair, you know, all smelly and a bunch. No offense to you, Alex, but, <laughs> you know, being around men, you know, when they haven't had a shower for a couple of days. I, as the mother of four men and, uh, and a husband, I know. It's, it can't not. There have been bad days for you, I'm sure. <laughs> Did you all in those days? days? And you can't jump in the ocean no. to get clean because you come out all salty. So you're sort of stuck. Yeah. So so you so at what point in time go go back if you would yeah. and ask Le- answer Leanne's question about the King of Jordan? Yes. Yeah, so oh, yes. Yeah, the whole lead up so, to like I'm yeah. going to do this this historical thing. Yeah. Because you know, then we need to get involved and talk about in the, the film. film. Yeah. So I met King Hussein uh, in 1984. I was 21 years old and I was just about to go off and do the 85, 86 Whitbread Around the World race. I was on my way, making my way back to the UK to join my boat. And I was looking for day work. It was in Newport, Rhode Island. And um, I was sort of working my passage home. And a friend of mine, Whitey, Captain Whitey, called me up at four o'clock in the morning and said, oh, my stewardess has let me down. I get a lot of this. Um, my stewardess has let me down. Can you come and, you know, and I'm like, oh, I know I need the work. But I'm so tired. He went, please. He begged. Thank goodness I went. So I jump on his boat, Excalibur. We go off to Martha's Vineyard and I say, so who's the charter? And he goes, we don't know. It's a big secret. So we're going, oh, is it uh, <laughs> Teddy Kennedy, maybe? Or, um, you know, as so we're going through all these names, we can't think who it would be. And then the Navy arrive and they search the boat, dogs, you know, bomb squad. It's like, but, and then they quarantine us for the night. So anyway, so this couple walk down the docks and dock the next day and I look at them. I think, I'm none the wiser. I have no idea who they are. I mean, I'm 21 years old. I haven't read a newspaper for 10 years, maybe at that point. <laughs> um, and Whitey goes, that's King Hussein of Jordan. I went, oh, right. Who's King Hussein of Jordan? <laughs> That's and priceless. He, he says, 
he's one of the most important men in the Arab world. And he gave me a very, in the time it took them to walk down to the dog, I had a very quick history lesson. And that's his uh, American Lebanese wife, Queen Noor, and she's beautiful. And yeah, she they get on the very, oh, she's just lovely. Um, and they come sailing for the day. And um, so his brother, Prince Hassan, was on the wheel all day. We couldn't get him off with his captain's hat on. And um, I mean, we had just had a fabulous fun day. And uh, I was went down to the galley to do the washing up afterwards. And I sensed this sort of presence beside me. And I turned around and it was King Hussein standing with a dishcloth in his hand. And I went... Oh, my goodness. I said, you can't do that. He said, I can do anything I like. I'm king. I went, <laughs> OK. <laughs> so he started drying up. I'm like, I'm really sure you shouldn't be doing that, but... King wow. Hussein was a man with a great capacity to love humans. And that is why he made such a great leader. And he was one of the, well, the most special person apart from my mum and my daughter. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, who I've yeah. ever met in my life. Uh, he, he collected people. Yeah. He was a collector of people. And actually, I am a little bit as well now. He saw something in me that he saw thought was interesting. And he said, I, tell me about this lifestyle. What? what is this, the way you live? So I said, well, you know, I moved from boat to boat, country to country. He said, you're like a Bedouin, which I didn't know at the time. It was a real compliment. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we just got on. We clicked. And I'm fascinated with navigation and sailing. And he's fascinated with navigation flying. And he's a ham radio operator. Mm -hmm. And I love single sideband radios and mucking around with all that junk. So... He said, what are you going to do next? I said, the 85, 86 Whitbread around the world race, except I'm having real problems getting on a boat because they won't, let, you know, they won't allow a girl. And he just, he didn't lay into me, is probably the wrong way, but he just went, right, that, he said, you strike me as someone that doesn't take no for an answer. You've got to go and do this. This is so important. You know, you've, you've got to be there. You've got to do it. So we, we kept in touch over the years and he was always on the end of a phone if I needed anything, help, wow. advice. Wow, a true friendship. It was a true friendship. But then he had that with a number of people um, mm -hmm. from all over the world, from weird and wonderful backgrounds. So when I went to his memorial service, I was standing next to a guy and I said to him, so what's your connection with King Hussein? He said, I am a ham radio operator from Norway and I meet <laughs> King Hussein in my shed. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, OK, okay. And, and there you go. Wow. And then to my right was Judy Ledden, who's a, um, the first woman to jump out of a... Um, a hot air balloon, hang gliding on the edge of space. Her eyeballs froze on the way down. I know, seriously. He oh sponsored goodness. her. He sponsored her. So this was an, just an extraordinary human being who made connections with other human beings and made amazing things happen. And that's why Jordan's the you know oasis of stability it is in the Middle East now. Yeah. Um, and he, of course, then ended up funding Maiden when no one else would. Yeah. So tell us about yeah, Maiden. Yeah, let's what, talk about that. What's, when did Maiden become like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I realised I didn't want to sail around the world again with 17 smelly guys. I mean, that was just a step too far, You'd really. You'd done that enough. Yeah, did that. I'm pretty Got sure once would have been enough, Yeah, once right? was definitely enough. So it was no for no more, really, than a very selfish reason that I wanted to sail around the world as a sailor. And the only way I could do that, I thought, was with a team of girls. So I thought, well, if I want it to happen, I've got to make it happen. So I'll put the first all-female crew together to sail around the world in my, in my naive, wonderful ignorance at that time. Oh, yeah, I'll just do that. Ah, be fine. <laughs> and, um, of How course, old were you at this, yeah. time, at this point? I was 22. Yeah, I mean, it just seemed to be the only way to get this thing done and to get out on the water as a sailor rather than a, as a skivvy. And so we put Maiden together, um, you know, gr 
got together this ragtag group of people and um, kind of made it up as we went along. We were told every inch of the way, every step of the way, you can't do this, you'll die. And for me, that was always so extraordinary because it wasn't you might die. It's people going, you're going to die. You will die. You will die. And it's like, <laughs> oh, my God. You know, and accusatory, you know. So yes. well, isn't that our business? If We want to die. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't think we are going to. We're, mm-hmm. we're sailing around the world to win the race. Mm-hmm. Our expectations and the world's expectations were so far apart. And I didn't, I didn't really realise it at the time, but the film um, that Alex has made has made me look at that through out, outward looking in glasses and going, of course they thought we couldn't do it. What, you know, we were living in this world and they were living in probably what they thought was reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it was a battle from the day we announced until the day we got to the start line. And then it kind of continued after that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, no offence to women, but a- as a woman, I can only imagine what it would have been like to be alone with. How many women were you? Twelve. Twelve women for an extended period of time. And, you know, women have their moments. You know, we can be a little bitchy and a little bit grumpy. <laughs> So not you're shaking your head. So you had none of that. Everybody got along. Everybody was good. We had some arguments before we crossed the start line, but that's what you have your training period for to find out who gets on, who doesn't. I sacked my first mate two weeks before we started. I mean, that was huge um, because we were clashing badly and that was never going to work. And And you were the boss. So you got to sack her. I owned the boat. Yeah. One of us had to go and I owned Mm -hmm. the boat. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It was by default. You win. A lot of people came and went. We, we built, we took two years to build that team. I mean, and I know that's really lucky and that's, that's a fantastic opportunity to do that. So by the time we crossed the start line, no, we all got on really, really well. We, there were never any arguments on the way around. No bitchiness. No one speaking behind anyone else's back. Um, That's a remarkable feat alone. I do wonder why. Um, one of the things that I, that we get thrown at me the most that I didn't understand was women don't get on. And I think, I get on with women. All the women I know get on with each other. I don't get that at all. Well, I, can, I, can, I've, I speak about this publicly regularly and I frequently say to women, to large groups of women, here's an idea. Be kind to each other. Absolutely. Wish each other well. Because women have a unique characteristic of being uh, jealous and envious of other women, but not jealous and envious of men. And so I am constantly reinforcing, and much as you, I'm in a business that's almost all male business. Yeah. And I'm successful in it. Um, But I do tell the women that, you know, want to hear me speak for whatever reason, I say, be nice to each other. Yeah. Look out for each other. You know, don't we be jealous because she's thinner than you, you know. Yeah. Whatever it is that women have with each other, that's why I said, did you all get along? Because women are not each other's, frequently not each other's best friends. Do you think that being out in the water in a, in a, with a force beyond yourselves might have just created that, yeah, that detente, let's call it, that relaxation of any sort of petty layers? Yeah, but, you know, but I, I also do think these days what I'm finding at the moment is women are coming together and are supporting each other, especially in sailing and in sport. You know, we're fighting a battle here. And, and you know, I've, I've felt for years that we need to come together and the same as you. You know, we, we have to be good to each other because no one else is going to do right. that for us. But I do feel that, that at the moment, in especially as I say in sport, that women are standing up for each other and supporting each other and cheering each other on. And I think, uh, you know, everything women do in sailing at the moment is, you know, and maybe 
maybe we weren't doing that before, but I, I really feel that we're on it now. Were you and, may, and, and may it not be the case that, that, that that's your experience of women because the world sets women against each other. Mm. If you make it such a competitive environment that only a few of you can succeed, then of course you're going to try and be the, get sharp elbows and, and you know, from day one learn yeah. to be competitive against each other. Whereas I think that particularly in that race, the eighty nine ninety race, you knew that the only way you would succeed was by being together. Yeah. You know, yeah. you weren't in competition with each other on that boat. No. You were in competition with everything else. Yeah. How long is that race? How many how how many days? Nine weeks, months. months. Nine months. Nine months, yeah. And this was sponsored by the king. Yeah, well Royal Jordanian Airlines, which was So did he were you in touch with him while you were out on the water? Yeah, all the time. Um it's so fantastic. I know. He was he was a, an extraordinary man, and, and the world is a, a poor place a without story? him. No, we kept it very quiet. Um, not a, not about your friendship, but oh. the race was the race a big news oh, story. Oh, massive, yes. huge. huge. I remember, I remember it. I had friends who were big into sailing on the East Coast, and ah, I remember okay. yeah, hearing yeah. about yeah. it and following it. How well, there have you... been the noticeable American sailors who've done the Whitbread as well. Oh, yes, so, there have been quite yeah. a few. That's true. Alex, how did you find out about the story? Was it a story you followed when it was happening, or did you discover the story? I, I think I was aware of the race because, as Tracy says, it was a it was a big event. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these were these were these were big spectacle races, and it was the time of big spectacle racing in the U.S. At least, yeah, eighty six. It started to become very popular to watch on television. Yeah. But it wasn't the world that I was especially interested in or mm-hmm. knew about until one fateful evening when uh, my daughter was leaving elementary school. She was 11 years old and about to move on to the next school. And um, they had what they called a celebration evening. And I have to admit, I went with a slightly heavy heart (laughs) because uh, she was my third child. And I'd been to two of these things already. And I knew that mostly what they involved was uh, um, a lot of, um, uh, you know, certificate giving, a lot of applause and some not very good singing. (laughs) So obviously I was a proud dad, but I I wasn't kind of thinking this was going to be a highlight of my year or my decade. But that year they had mixed it up and they'd got along a guest speaker, you know, a, a reasonably local resident just a few miles down the road. And <laughs> Who Tracy, also didn't want to be there that yeah, night because I was exhausted. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but thank goodness Tracy decided to honour her commitment and she turned up as she would. And, you know, I think I knew the minute Tracy started to talk that she was a remarkable character. I mean, I think you can say sitting here, yeah. you know that straight yeah. away, you get yeah. that sense. And then as... Tracy's story unfolded and he had these kind of wrapped 11-year-olds because 11-year-olds are a tough audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the tough toughest. Audience. Oh, yeah. Boys and girls, you know, it's a mixed, it was a mixed school, so it's boys and girls, it wasn't just girls. But these 11-year-olds and the entire adult audience as well were all completely wrapped. Mm-hmm. And I especially, and I was just thinking, I, you know, this is an amazing, this has got to be a film. This mm-hmm. has got to be a film. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's amazing that you thought that. <gasps> uh, know, straight off it? the bat. Straight wow. off the bat. Was so it, what were you telling them? Tell us a little bit about what you said that that's night. That's amazing. So we that was back. it. Just, what I've just told you. you just yeah. told Literally. Us. Yeah. yeah. It was a talk yeah. about what we'd done. And the spirit of not giving up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you had this core message that yeah. was, you know, you know, don't listen to what other people say about what you can and can't do. Believe in yourself. And if you try long enough and hard enough, the chances are that you will succeed. So I'm imagining this. You're talking to a group of children giving them this you-can-do-anything-you-want-to-do, and you happen to be sitting in the room. Mm. And for some unbelievable strike of genius, you said, this is a film. Well, I knew Tracy was a character, and I could see it. The way she described it was just, I could see the the, the sequences and the the, Mm -hmm. the events unfolding. And um, in fact, I, I was so convinced that 
uh, that, that it was such a good film, it had to have been made. Already. Already. Yeah, I, could I couldn't see believe that. that it hadn't been made I already. So that. when I went up to you and afterwards and just said, can I call you? Because uh, there's, there's something in there. I'd love to, you know. And what was your background that led you to have that aha moment? You're a filmmaker, um, right? I'm a filmmaker, yeah. but with a mixed background, quite an unusual background, because when I uh, – so going back to where I left you, which was hiding under the duvet <laughs> watching, watching movies. <laughs> um, back uh, in the day. You know, I, I had no connection with that world. No, you know, my parents couldn't be further from the world of filmmaking or the arts or anything like that. You know, my mother worked in a, in a very sort of uh, – she was a support person in a hospital and my dad worked in a factory. You know, where there was nothing – uh, in their world that uh, really you know, guided me in that direction. But they did believe in education and they had striven to give me the best education they could. And as a result of that, I ended up getting an offer to go to a, a good university uh, and I went there. Um, but I still had no – I mean, I realise now I was very naive. I still had no way of understanding how I was going to pursue my career. Um, and when I left university, it was a time – it was, in fact, 1989 – and um, and there was a, a recession going on and there were no jobs. Yeah. And my first job was as a receptionist on a magazine. And I knew I wanted to do something in the world. I was looking for the thing that was going to – and I thought, I know, I'm going to become a journalist and I'm going to change the world mm-hmm. through journalism. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make it a better place. And so from that job as a receptionist on a magazine, uh, The New Statesman was the magazine, oh which I happened goodness. to read. That oh, was gonna, yeah. And I saw that one day I turned to the back page and there was an advert saying they were looking for a temporary receptionist. Temporary was the thing that really attracted me because I really didn't want a job at all. Uh, uh, my parents were saying, you have to go and get a job, otherwise you're going to go and work in the, in, the, in the factory. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to get a job as a receptionist. And I went from that, and I'm, as you do when you're that age, I made myself indispensable to those around me, uh, got a job researching for one of the journalists, started doing a little bit of writing, and ended up becoming an investigative journalist. And I then realised I was worked in print to start with and found that very lonely, uh, very lonely because there wasn't a, you know, I wasn't in an office. Mm. I wasn't, you would just follow your own stories. And even when you were filing copy, you'd file it down the phone. And yeah. um, so it's I thought, how can collaborative I? As, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, kind of actually a very lonely enterprise. And then I thought, okay, so this is, this is not good. I'm going to work in television. And I managed to jump across into television. I also thought that's where the girls might be. Um, <laughs> I realised I went into the wrong bit of television because mm. there were girls there in, in the bit I was in, but you know, not, not not that many because I was in the journalism side, and um, uh, and I really my career unfolded from there, and that led me into documentaries. And you know, I'd always I'd loved documentaries, you know, since yeah. when I was watching those on television I love as well. Documentaries too. God, this and this all really growing felt like popularity. Yeah, it are. was this sort of meandering journey back to being a filmmaker, but I didn't I didn't have a grand plan. Um, uh, and so, but it did give me a schooling in storytelling. I was very fortunate. I, uh, I worked on a show called World in Action, which was a current affairs kind of 60 minutes type show. But the thing about this show was that it didn't have any presenters. They were just pure half-hour documentaries right in the middle of primetime television. Mm, that was an amazing uh, And so you were under a lot of scrutiny. My, my, uh, so I started out as a researcher and worked my way up, and after a couple of years I became a producer and made my first show. I think my se- the second show I, I made 
was watched by 13 million people. Wow. You know, which is Those kind of are like, the days. you know, it's just <laughs> phenomenal. Um, uh, you know, and I was I was like 24, that. 25, mm. you know. It's wow. Crazy amount yeah, of people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a lot of freaking people. Yeah. And um, so, you know, the, the pressure was on. It wasn't a low pressure environment. But at the same time, you had to work out how to tell these stories with just using characters, just following characters. And it was on, it was on, you know, if you like the popular channel, it was on ITV. So you had to find a way into kind of complex political stories or, 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 or you know, things that work, uh, you know, had that, that, that current edge and yet tell them through, through accessible characters. And I think that was the best training I could have had. One little anecdote was that, that might give you a sense of what that world was like was the person whose job I got when I joined that particular show who'd left in order to create the vacancy was Paul Greengrass. Oh, wow. um, oh, no kidding. So I was kind of, you know, they were, I didn't, I mean, he was just Paul Greengrass at the time, a, a researcher on this show or a producer right. on this show. But I, I realised now I was kind of stepping into some quite large shoes. Wow. Um, and actually, you know, we've kind of got to know each other over the years, even though I, actually we never worked at the place together. But uh, yeah, so I'd the gone thing. from there into documentaries. I'd followed that for a decade or so. and But really, I was always being drawn back to drama. And then I sort of spent some time in drama. Um, which is why when I first heard Tracy's story, I assumed it was a, 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 it was a dramatic film I saw in, in my head, a narrative film. Um, but then by the time I, I, I had uh, connected with Tracy, um, I had rediscovered my love of documentaries um, because there's, there's something very pleasurable about working with real people, getting into oh, their yeah. lives, discovering them, seeing the world through their, through, through their eyes. Um, and and I had missed it uh, all the years I'd been working mm. in in drama, you know, working mm-hmm. making shows for the BBC, writing sh- shows for the BBC, and um, and so I had thought I, I'm actually I was looking to kind of get this balance back in my life where I would continue working with drama, hopefully you know make a film, um, but but also wanted to rekindle my connection with documentary, and so. When uh, you know, in the discussions we were having after that that evening, when I met Tracy, she told me that there was they'd had a camera on board the whole way around, and there was this this footage so existed somewhere. Noticed, out there. I noticed the coverage was incredible, yeah. and you know, you say a dramatic narrative film; it has a lot of dramatic narrative qualities to it because of the coverage mm-hmm. and the way that you cut it and the way that you tell the story. It's really incredibly like. Just the, the, the film of you and the other young women on the boat just is so evocative of that moment in time. It was a very different time than it is now for women. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need to give a shout out here to two, two remarkable women, uh, w- one of whom was on the boat and one of whom was in the production team. Uh-huh. Uh, the first is the, the, uh, um, Tracy's childhood friend. Uh, Joe Gooding, mm-hmm. uh, who was the person mostly responsible for the camera work, not 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 exclusively, but she she wielded the camera mostly. That's amazing. Mm. And what a gift to have that. Mm. Well, what what was incredible about Joe's camera work was that you she's know, not a camera woman. Well, well, <laughs> is that she has this 
emotional intelligence, Joe. She kind of gets people and mm. she sees them. Mm. And that came through in the way that she used the camera. And she let the camera hang on people. Uh, you know, we saw lots of footage because there were other boats that had cameras on board. And you looked at the footage that came from those boats and there was just nothing. There was kind of like they tried to catch action or they tried to kind of they would give you very dry updates on where they were at. But Joe's gave you these soulful portraits of the crew. And, and it just kind of like your yeah. heart goes out I, to these I, I people. Noticed, so I noticed she was that. the first person. I mean, you know, the, I have so much to thank her for in, in her camera work. It was yeah. amazing. The second person is the amazing editor who came to work with us on the show, uh, Katie Breyer, um, who uh, I met at a gallery opening and uh, <laughs> I had just watched uh, the film Virunga, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, uh, which I had loved. And a mutual friend introduced us and said, I think you both work in the same business. And I said, oh, so what do you do? And, you know, I'm trying to, now trying to get back into documentaries. I was saying, she said, oh, I just made a documentary. It's this film, Varunga. And I thought the Varunga was so wonderfully cut. I, uh, that was my favourite thing about the film was the, the editing of it. And so I just said, well, we've got to find something to do together. So when Maiden came along, I knew that she was the right, the right person. And her skill as an editor mm. is, is immense, immense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still, I sometimes, you know, in the, even in the late stages of post-production, I'd be, you know, watching maybe doing the sound mix or something, and I'd be looking at it thinking, oh, my goodness, look at that. Look how she's chosen that particular bit of footage to go to next and, and seeing things that she had sort of slipped in that I had been unaware of. And it, it was, it, you know, it was just a joy working mm-hmm. with her. She is mm-hmm. a very talented woman. Mm-hmm. And you had footage also from your, your childhood a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Um, I... When we were so when we first met and we were talking about this and um, Alex said to me so you know I'm thinking of this you know drama and I went oh right okay <laughs> he said well you know obviously there won't be any footage I do remember thinking at the time how bloody old do you think I am um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew how big the cameras were in those days you know <laughs> so I said no we, we we filmed everything I said and also my mum has got boxes full of stuff she followed us around the world your mum's alive right she died in 2012 oh um so as you are young your mother could see, yeah she, she must have been a little bit on the young side um do you know what my mum was my age now when she was following maiden around the world which oh, is really weird for wow. me um but she collected everything everything i say oh mum please stop she she said you'll thank me one day and boy was she right yeah, yeah. she she got news clips from other countries yeah. on you know vhs video oh, my and so when she died and i sort of opened up all these boxes there were all my childhood films all the stuff from Maiden, new stuff. I mean, I handed over to Alex and Victoria <laughs> these four massive boxes. They said, have you got, you know, apart from the footage we found, have you got any footage? I went, yeah. <laughs> have this lot. Um, so painstakingly wow. going through all that lot of rubbish um, yes, as well. a real jigsaw puzzle. A real jigsaw <laughs> yeah. What puzzle. a gift, though. That's amazing. So yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the moxie is the word that I would use for that you had you you did things like putting putting the the crew in bathing suits and doing little saucy provocative things for for attention can you talk about some of the things and what the thought thoughts were that went into you know all well, we would never have done that at the beginning. At the yes. beginning, we were very businesslike. Um, although we were very clear, we didn't want to be male clones. We were very we're all girly girls. Um, and you know, hence the pink shorts and the grey t-shirts, which became our trademark. And when we used to sail into port, you know, I remember someone saying to me, "Gosh, you look like you've just been out for a day sail." 
And you look at the men's boats, you know, they get in, they're all like, yeah, yeah. 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 beards and, yeah. you know, and all this sort of, you know, and we, we sort of trot in like this, you know, hello, <laughs> our hair all beautifully plaited by Mickey, you know, hair by Mickey and um, legs shaved and the whole sort of little white pop socks and everything. So for us, that was really important because we didn't want to be seen as becoming men, um, which often women are seen, you know, if they're successful, oh, they had to become a man to become successful. We didn't want that. So we were, you know, sort of very much down that path anyway. And then I think because we started to do so well, we won the second leg and then we won the third leg. When we did pretty badly coming into Fort Lauderdale, uh, thanks to nearly sinking and uh, my not great navigation around Cape Horn. We, we did, um, you know, think we could do with that little distraction technique here, but we would never have worn the swimsuits if we hadn't done as well as we, we'd mm-hmm. already done. So we had to prove ourselves mm-hmm. to then say, we can actually mm-hmm. wear whatever we want to wear. Mm-hmm. And again, it was my daughter who said this to me um as we were watching the film i think maybe at bafta all of us together we i noticed we all went at the swimsuits we went oh God, like that. <laughs> and max said to me afterwards she said mum why why do you do that and i said because i i'm worried that girls these days that i've made a rod for their back that they may think this isn't real feminism or that they may be angry with us and she went look you fought for the right to do what you want to do. Doesn't that include the right to wear what you want to wear? She said, and you look bloody great. <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> okay, well, yeah, you know, you, we took it and we owned it in the end. Yeah. But it's taken us 30 years, really, until the <laughs> film to, I think, explore the reaction and connotations of what came out of that. But I think that is right. You know, if you're a woman, you, you're fighting for the right to wear what you want to wear. And if you think you look great in a swimsuit crossing the finishing line, then wear a swimsuit crossing the finishing yeah. line. So great. Such so, a brilliant yeah. strategy. So so go back to the atmosphere while this was all going on. This was a big news story. Mm. So every time you would come into port, there were tons of people there waiting to get photographs of you. Mm. And the newspapers were full of this story. What was that experience like? Well, they were mostly there to see if we killed each other um or and what was very unfortunate actually quite a number of the legs one of us would arrive in with a black eye and it was because we'd fallen over or hit ourselves in the face with a winch handle or you know some stupid thing of course the first question would be oh punch up is it not getting, yeah. on, not getting on girls no no we really sally really did headbutt that winch over there um you know and then the question would be, is, so did you all fight this leg? No. Um, you know, oh, I just, you know, we are you lesbians? If you're not lesbians, are you screwing all the boys? Are you, you know, is it, you know, yeah. Not, they only ask these not, questions of women. They yes. don't ask these questions of men. Yeah, so it wouldn't be like, well, what were your tactics on this leg? And do you think you could have done that better? And, you know, what sort of, why did you go decide to go south of Kerguelen or, you know, anything like that? These are the questions for the guys. The questions we'd get would be, are you getting on? And, you know, sort of... Yeah, it's, it's still stuff true. Stuff like that. So that's yeah. what the interest is about. We, yeah. People weren't coming down to see how well we'd done. I mean, our friends and family were, and, and intelligent sportsmen were coming down to see that. But most of the journalists were coming down to see if we'd killed each other. What an amazing experience. So, how, so you guys agreed to make a film... Then what happened? How did you get funding for it? (laughs) (laughs) They were looking for funding for the film and I was looking for the funding to buy Maiden. Our lives then, New Black Films and the Maiden Factor, our lives have run in parallel for the past five years. It's it's surreal, really, isn't it? Yeah, and there are a lot of overlaps between 
funding a project like 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 Maiden first time around and like the Maiden Factor, which is Trace's current project, um, and making a film. There are all sorts of parallels about you know struggling to raise money. It's a really difficult thing. You know, nobody, you know, th- this. I mean, I, but it's also been one of those beautiful journeys because it's turned out for the best. If, yeah. If someone, if we had had money in our back pocket to make the film straight off the bat, uh, we would have probably made it. You know, three years ago. And it would have gone out to a world that wasn't ready to hear mm. that story yet. Uh, whereas actually, because we were made to wait, because it, we did struggle to get the finance, and then even then we had to do it so carefully, we had such, such a tight budget mm. that the only way to do it was to do it, you know, really meticulously and sort of first get the archive in and then piece it together, which took, you know, years to, to sort of collect all that stuff, even before we started to cut it. But what that meant was that by the time we had finished the film, the world was ready for this story and was interested in hearing it. And so the reception has been that much better because of it. We were very fortunate to be frustrated in the first few years of trying to get this right. project off the ground. And, and you two were in constant touch with each other. And yeah, we yeah, talked a lot. You were yeah, running on your much, parallel yeah. path. And you, at that same time, let's talk a little bit about your charitable work. Well, we found ex- almost exactly the month that I met Alex, I had a phone call from the Seychelles uh, asking me if I knew who owned my boat Maiden. And unfortunately, I did. Um, so I said, yes, I do. Um, what, what's, what's he done with her now? And they said, well, he's dumped her in the Seychelles and she's just sitting here rotting. She's been here for two years. Aluminium boat in the water in the tropics. Not good. Um, so he said that the, the, the boat's in such a bad state, we're, we're, we're thinking of taking her out and sinking her. I just went, don't you dare. And Maiden, to be clear to our listeners, was very famous. Yeah. And everybody knew who Maiden yeah. was. So I'd had to sell her at the end of the race because uh, I had to pay the wages and, you know, we still right. had no money at the end of the race. Um, so Another way in which it's like making a documentary film. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we managed to raise the money through crowdfunding, which I'd never done before. That was interesting. But we still didn't have the money to get her back to the UK. I went down to the Seychelles to see her. I called Howard. So Howard was my project manager the first time round. That, you know, sort of 25 years later, I call him up and go, Howard, what are you doing? He goes, I'm just about to retire. And I went, I don't think you are, actually. <laughs> I, I've just bought Maiden. He's like, oh, God. Um, so he, I went down. I called him up. I went, Howard, we can't sell this boat back. She's she's not far off from sinking. So um, so then we had – then we – this weird reenactment journey again of how do we get on a ship how do we get it back home these guys were raising the money for the film we're trying to get maiden home and then i was sitting at home one night uh, again this, there's been wonderful synchronicity i think throughout the film and this this project sitting at home one night phone rings and it's uh, a uae number so i pick the phone up thinking it's a friend of mine i go hello <laughs> and this beautiful educated female arabic voice at the other end of the phone says hello could I speak to Tracy Edwards? So I sort of go, I'll just go and get her. (laughs) Um, Come on the phone. And this this lovely voice says, "Um, I hear you've rescued Maiden. Um, My brother Ali has sent me a press release and you're linking in with Jordan and I'd love to speak to you about that. So I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what do you want to know? She said, said, well, my father sponsored you the first time round. Oh, Oh, wow. God, I just got the chills. I know. (laughs) She said, oh, I said, do you remember me? Yeah, because you haven't seen me since I was 12. I'm like, of course I remember you. So Princess Hyde, King Hussein's daughter. I know. So Prince Ali, her brother Ali, Prince Ali, had sent her the press release from Jordan, which we'd just done. Again, completely by chance. Uh She said, what can I do to help? I said, well, we do need rather a lot of money. She went, right, okay. 
that's we'll do that. that that's that's done. So we got her on a ship, got her back to the UK, restored her year and a half. She's now looking absolutely stunningly gorgeous. Um, completely as she was, apart from the nav station, which we have upgraded so that Wendy doesn't spend her her life trying to get weather faxes and you know do the things <laughs> yeah. that I had to do with the satellite. Her, her satellites. <laughs> so much has changed. Oh, it's it, incredible. It's so much. It, yeah. It's worlds apart. Yeah. Um, but everything else is is pretty much the same. And so what we what I being to Princess Hire, I said my thing is girls' education. I'm passionate about girls' education. I think. We, well, we know that we can solve all the world's problems if every girl in the world has an equal education to a boy. She said, that's great with me, you know, let, let's do that. So we started the Maiden Factor Foundation, which is a charity. And so Maiden is now doing a two and a half year world tour, sailing around the world. I hope inspiring the next generation, but also, you know, sort of the, 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 the nuts and bolts of it is raising funds and awareness for girls' say education. It, say, tell our listeners how they can find. What's the URL? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, themaidenfactor.org okay um, and, and you can find everything out it's be. the maidenfactor.org so one of the guys said to me so when she came back we were looking for a name for the project because um, we'd already had maiden and I have maiden too as this guy was lifting the boat out of the water he said do you recognize me and I went yeah I remember you because 27 years ago you put maiden into the water didn't you and he went do you remember me? I don't know. Do people think I have a bad memory or something? This is a running theme. <laughs> so um, he said, you know, yes, he said, I put Maiden in 27 years ago. And he went, I, I seem to have a bit of dust in my oh, eye. Oh, he said, yeah. what, what's that? And I just turned around to him. I said, that's the Maiden Factor. And I went, oh, I that's know. a perfect name for a project. Wow. Write that down quickly. So wow. it, it became the Maiden Factor um, and a .org because it's a charity. Mm-hmm. But um, we have an amazing new team of girls. Oh, sorry, I'm not allowed to call them girls, women. Five permanent crew, and then we so have... So she's sailing again. She's sailing again. And she'll be on the west coast of the States in August. Ah. Yeah, she's coming to see Very you guys. Very nice. And we yeah. want to visit. Will and you be with her? I will be in San Francisco. We totally yeah. want to come. Yeah, yeah we, well, we you will be invited. We totally want to come. And talk, when is the film coming yeah. out? The film uh, uh, is released on the 28th of June. Of June. Uh, so very And where shortly. will our listeners find your film? Any good theatre. Any good theatre. <laughs> but it's yeah. coming out in LA on Friday. It, it's coming out in LA, LA on Friday uh, and New York 28th of June and then we're rolling it out from there. Do you know where it's playing in LA and New York? Uh, Even I think it's theater. playing in the Landmark. Uh, the Landmark? Yeah, that would be the... That, yeah. would, that yeah. makes yeah. a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah. The Landmark in New York and perhaps even in New York because I think they're related yes. to each yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's where they all... And tell were. us the name of the film again so the listeners know definitively what it's they're looking for. It's just simply called Maiden. It's so serendipitous that you two met each other. It's really, that's an amazing, everything well, about I, this story reeks of serendipity. I know. I would say I feel very fortunate, not just because it was an opportunity to make a film which I cared about, but it's been wonderful having Tracy in my life because all of the things that you see in the film, all of the things you've heard about today are what Tracy is. She is an unbelievably inspiring character. Oh, for sure. And I just yeah. feel very lucky to have had Tracy in my life for yeah. five years. Well, I feel very lucky to have been <laughs> with these guys. Yeah. So. And you have such lightness about you. You have such a like, oh, yeah, oh, whatever. Let's just keep going forward. <laughs> I think I've it's been really battered so many times. That's yeah. the only way to be now. Yeah, no, it's really inspirational, actually, Thank to you. see somebody who is just uh, uh, as as light and lively and... Uh, inspiring and thank you. Know. you. I'd like yeah, to know how much great. of this your mother knew. She 
didn't ever get to see us rescue Maiden, which I think is a shame. She but would she saw loved. you sail Maiden. Oh, yeah. And she experience. came around the world with us. She was mum to everyone, my mum. She came around in the 85-86 race and became mum to the drum guys because I was going out with one of the drum guys and so she sort of installed herself in the drum house and... Um, <laughs> I know. And then she came around the world again with us on Maiden. And, and she would be loving this. I, mm-hmm. I'm sad she missed this, but um, but she's watching from somewhere. She wow. Is. What she's, an unbelievable story. Is. We are so honored to have spent this time with you. Thank you so much. Before we close down, is there anything that you want to add that we didn't talk about? From our point of view, if anyone does want to get involved in the Maiden Project now, um, to go to the website, themaidenfactor.org, and there are lots of different ways you can get involved. Love that you're doing that work. Yeah. It's a joyful project. We love it. I genuinely believe in 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 our lives that when we can, we should pay it forward. And uh, and from my point of view, if if you're interested in uplifting sports documentaries uh, or documentaries of other sorts, go to newblackfilms.com because uh, we uh, you know documentaries are very difficult to make even in the world of Netflix and uh, this resurgence of interest. There's still things that you have to really nurture and work hard to to produce, but. When you do so, the rewards can be absolutely fantastic. And, I love it. Uh, you know, I and my partners, Victoria, uh, Gregory and James Erskine, have this little company that we take a great deal of care trying to make the very best documentaries we and can. And they do make it. And they do make It's newblackfilms.com. Newblackfilms.com. And they do make the best documentaries. Not that I want to accuse you Brits of having funny accents, but I do want to make sure that we say New Black. <laughs> you I tell all my British friends, Jersey what did you accent? say? I'll say it with my Indiana accent. <laughs> New Black. It's so funny. I'm not kidding. I tell all – I have so many British friends. I go, what? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Oh, Thank you guys for having really great. enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Next on Say It Forward, Roy Bitten is an American piano and keyboard player best known as a member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He has spent decades with Springsteen both in the studio and on tour. During the past decade alone, those tours have grossed more than $800 million, according to Billboard's box score archives. He's played to more than 8 million fans at more than 1,300 concerts. The Wrecking Ball Tour was one of the highest-grossing music tours of all time, playing to more than 3.5 million fans. Roy's also a producer in his own right, having produced Lucinda Williams' iconic album, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. He's contributed to countless other albums, as well as producing Patti Smythe, Don Henley, Chicago, Dire Straits, Ian Hunter, Peter Gabriel, Stevie Nicks, David Bowie, Bonnie Tyler, Bob Seger, Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan, and Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell Tour. To complete this illustrious career, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the E Street Band in 2014. So join us when we find out what makes Roy so special and why the boss calls him the professor. When we rewind to the beginning with Roy Bitten on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 